Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Hi, everyone. This is Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, the host of the Parlay podcast. It is a beautiful sunny day here in Sudbury, and I have a guest from London, Ontario. I have Dr. Laura Murray with me today. Uh, Laura is the director of the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Western University, where she also serves as a professor. Laura teaches courses on aging and neurogenic communication disorders, and her research interests include examining how cognitive deficits interact with language abilities in aphasia, right hemisphere disorders, and progressive neurological diseases. Hi, Laura. Good morning. (laughs) Is it nice and sunny where you are? Yes, it is, and it's going to be hot and humid. (laughs) Yeah, I know. The humidity is what kills us, right? (laughs) Which I don't like. <laughs> no. Well, you know, I, we were just talking before uh, before the episode, and we are at our, our cottage. So luckily, we do have the lake to cool off in, but without air conditioning out here, yes. And that's why I have my hair up all the time. It's my summer look. <laughs> um, yeah. Same hair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So thank you so much for agreeing to um, being a guest speaker on this podcast. Um, You know, I I really try to raise awareness on what we do as speech and language pathologists on communication disorders. Again, I find myself explaining to, you know, friends even and family members and people from the public what it is that we do. And it's really not obvious for, um, for anyone who's not really aware of and cognizant of what we do. And I think at the minute I, I talk about language, that's when they kind of <laughs> look at me with this blank, blank look. So uh, a lot of what you do is about, about language. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more before we get into what you do and, and your, your uh, research experience, tell us what exactly are neurogenic communication disorders? Cause that's quite a mouthful. Okay. So neurogenic communication disorders refer to any kind of communication problem that results from something going wrong in the brain. So it might be that somebody has had a stroke, somebody might have suffered a traumatic brain injury, somebody might have had an infection like meningitis, Um, Or somebody might be experiencing a progressive disease, a disease that continues to get worse and worse, unfortunately, over time, like Parkinson's disease or any of the um, diseases that um, people have likely heard of that cause dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. So anything within the brain that's going wrong that unfortunately can have a negative effect on how well we communicate with others. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And how common is this? Um, Unfortunately, very common. (laughs) uh, A lot of those, um, you know, disorders, diseases that I just mentioned that affect the brain, stroke, traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's disease are very common. 
So for example, traumatic brain injury um, is one of the largest disablers and killers, unfortunately, of children in the world. Um, stroke is in the top three, four in terms of causing disability um, and death as well um, across age groups as well. So unfortunately, these are quite common and mm-hmm. you likely already know somebody who <laughs> yep. is experiencing these. Yeah. For sure. And For may, sure. we may not even know that that's what's causing some of their difficulties. Okay. So tell us a bit about yourself then. Why, why are you, did you initially show interest in this topic? Well, um, (laughs) actually I first started when I finished, um, my master's in speech language pathology, um, from Minot State University. (laughs) Um, which everybody knows well I'm from Manitoba let me just say I'm from (laughs) Manitoba that's why I went to um, Minot Um, I actually started working out in the um, schools and I was very interested in actually working with um, children and then I tried that for a little bit and then I moved um, into Winnipeg and started working at St. Boniface Hospital and I was fascinated by I was working um, covering inpatient and outpatient, and I was just fascinated with um, you know the the challenges of trying to help people with these acquired cognitive and communication disorders. And I had a lot of um, individuals, um, the individuals that were affected by the communication problem, as well as their family and friends as well as, you know, other hospital staff asking me questions and I didn't know the answers. Mm-hmm. And that inspired me to go do my um, PhD. And I have, you know, that was many decades ago. <laughs> and, and I continue to, um, it's very challenging and there's a lot of problem solving, but it's so rewarding when you figure something out that actually does have an impact and helps individuals um, cope with mm-hmm. these communication disorders. Actually, my very first guest on the Parley podcast, um, Ashley Tyndall, is a brain injury survivor. And so if you, if the listeners want to get the the perspective from an actual survivor, then I recommend you listen to episode one. But it was really interesting talking to her because she really had to do a lot of work with her cognitive communication skills and and is still having to do a lot of work today on those skills, even though I think she was eight years post or, or it's been quite a while since her injury. Okay, so maybe tell us a bit more about your research and your work then. Okay, so for, um, as you Briefly said, when you introduced me, a uh, primary focus of my research has been to explore how when somebody with a acquired language problem, so problems with coming up with words, understanding words, putting sentences together, um, how those people, um, when they have these types of acquired language issues, um, do they have other types of uh, cognitive problems that might make their language difficulties even more (laughs) problematic? Um, Or alternately, 
if they're not experiencing some additional cognitive problems, can we capitalize upon that in terms of how we um, come up with our language treatments? So looking at this relationship between language problems and what other cognitive issues there may or may not be, or maybe a better way of saying that would be other cognitive strengths and weaknesses that we need to take into consideration when we're providing services to somebody with acquired language problems. Mm -hmm. So that's been the whole thrust. (laughs) And what what are some of your findings? What, you know, what can you tell us about that? Okay. So um, one area that I've looked at this a lot is in aphasia, which is an acquired language problem subsequent to stroke or traumatic brain injury when somebody has difficulties, again, understanding um, as well as producing language. So for a long time, when we thought about aphasia, we talked about it as an acquired language problem. However, you know, typically somebody ends up with aphasia due to a stroke or some sort of damage to the brain. And um, we know that the brain is very interconnected and a lot of our abilities work because there's all sorts of parts of the brain that are working at the same time. So I started looking at aphasia because I was thinking, well, what are the chances that only language is compromised by this brain damage. And so I started looking at other um, higher level abilities, not just language, but attention and memory and problem solving and executive function skills like that. And what we found over the years was that, yep, the uh, vast majority of individuals with aphasia um, also have some sort of difficulty with these other cognitive abilities. Not all, Mm -hmm. but some, or again, the vast majority. And so that was really important because it meant that when we go to try and help somebody with aphasia, we need to um, also assess these other um, aspects of um, cognition and take them into consideration coming up for a plan with aphasia uh, treatment. So actually I should, I'm going to step back just a little bit and say, (laughs) not only do they um, often have these additional cognitive problems, but we've done further research to show that um, they can make language even more difficult. Um, So for example, um, I remember working with one gentleman who had, relatively mild aphasia is one of those individuals where if you were just saying hello and how's the weather might not even know that he was struggling with aphasia. Um, I asked him to complete some tasks with some background noise Mm -hmm. and he went from barely (laughs) being able to tell he had aphasia to having extreme word difficulties word finding difficulties and having trouble understanding um, what was being said to him. So we know it can make language a lot more difficult. And we also know that um, there's also research that's looking at that the individuals with aphasia who um, are tending to do better in their aphasia treatment are the ones that have fewer cognitive issues. 
So there's definitely a really important relationship between identifying these problems so that we can, again, incorporate that information into how we help people with aphasia. Mm-hmm. Because I guess bottom line is it's very difficult to dissociate language from all of these other cognitive factors, right? I mean, it's it's very difficult. You said some people might just have difficulties with their language, but for the most part, the brain is a pretty intricate, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, everything is interrelated. And so if one thing's not working well, like the likelihood of something else not working well is pretty high. Um, so how do people, like, what are some of the, the red flags? You know, if a family member has someone who has had a stroke and might have aphasia, how do they know that maybe there's something else going on? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of signs. One of the things that made me even think about some of these other um, cognitive issues was I had one, I was working with one family um, who attended our uh, aphasia support group and the husband subsequent to his stroke kept saying, you know, he was had a lot of uh, um, aphasia, um, but he, he kept telling his wife, like he, there were pockets of memories he was missing and he would be like, yeah, I know it. Um, I know it, but that was his, what he'd always mm-hmm. say, I know it, but I can't say it. Um, but he would say that about their wedding. Like oh. he was like, I don't even remember. I don't remember where it was. I don't remember where it took place. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was actually missing these pockets of memories, which is um, sort of a sign that we think of more so with respect to traumatic brain injury, um, not with stroke and aphasia. Mm -hmm. So that would be a sign. Um, A positive would be that if you see um, your loved one with aphasia coming up with um, positive ways, um, strategies to support their communication. Um, So, for example, if you're telling them, giving them some instructions or saying, you know, go at the store, I'd like you to pick up these four items and you see them like doing, um, you know, counting on their fingers to sort of encode what you've told them, those four items, that would be, oh, well, that's good. That mm-hmm. means you've got some strategies um, to help support. Um, other sort of um, issues that might make you think that there's some additional issues is if you do see that um, in the presence of, you know, uh, visual clutter or um, a lot of uh, noise, auditory noise, and you notice that now all of a sudden they're having problems understanding you or they can't follow the conversation as well, that would be giving you some ideas that there's some attention issues um, you know, watching how they carry out, um, activities, daily activities that used to be quite easy for them, but now you're seeing that you need to give them more guidance in terms of how they might plan something, how they might problem solve something. Mm-hmm. Those would all be some examples of some mm-hmm. areas to be, you know, think, oh, maybe we should be working on that too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And like you were saying earlier, it's the minute you add that background noise. So sometimes you can have a nice conversation if you're having coffee with your spouse and that's going fine, but then you have family over for dinner and all of a sudden the communication breaks down and it's much more difficult for sure. Yeah. In fact, another couple um, that I'd worked with, um, she had noticed that her husband, they, they loved to entertain and they would always have people over. And so, of course, even after um, he had his stroke and he had, again, quite severe aphasia, they continued to, because um, that's who they were. They liked to be, they were the people who everybody went to for dinner. Um, but she noticed that he would withdraw and he would actually, you know, basically eat and then leave, like leave the table. Yeah. <laughs> How rude. And, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it turned out again, when we did some further assessment, he had a lot of these additional cognitive issues and it was just overwhelming for him and he couldn't follow anything and he found it very, it was upsetting for him. Mm-hmm. And of course, unfortunately, he didn't have the words um, to help share that with his wife about why he wasn't. Mm-hmm. So they continued to entertain, but given that they had this information about these um, additional cognitive issues, they did invite just one couple over and she wouldn't put on like background music, like and so they just adapted and it was a, um, you know, a success, I guess. Mm-hmm. Then he could, again, participate and it wasn't overwhelming. Yeah. And when you know, like you said, if you know about all these strategies that may work, then you can, yeah. you can adapt. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, so going on, I always ask my, ask my guests what communication means to them. So what does communication mean to you? Well, I would say that uh, communication means to me, and I think a lot of people probably have found this over the last couple of months <laughs> when I'm um, yeah. dealing with social distancing, um, that it means connection. Um, the ability, communication allows us to connect with others. It allows us to share our ideas it allows us to um, share our feelings, and it also allows us to understand the ideas and feelings of others. So, you know, communication and connection, they are, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and obviously so integral to um, well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that to me is what has been you know, when you mentioned that a lot of people don't understand what um, speech language pathologists do. And, um, you know, when you're working in the hospital with um, individuals that have had a stroke or TBI, um, it is that, you know, acutely there's a focus on walking out that communication's been affected <laughs> yeah, and exactly. then, then they really see oh <laughs> it is vital probably I'm I'm definitely biased compared to PT <laughs> physical therapy but <laughs> I really think it is and a lot of people discover you know what and I've actually even had people with aphasia say that to me 
I'd rather, if I had my choice, I would have picked having, you know, having to be use a walker or be in a wheelchair than to have this kind of communication challenge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because we use it so much and we depend on it. And as social beings, it's, it's crucial yeah. <laughs> to our, to our, even our well being and our mental health. And like you said, with, with the COVID pandemic, the social distancing, you, we kept seeing over and over again, uh, social distancing doesn't mean social isolation, right? And that's right. community. And really the only thing we had it, it was communication right. via, via video conferencing or, or yeah. what have you. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I know. And that's what's, it's, it's invisible for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, several years ago, there was a push. Um, I worked in the United States for um, many years and there was a push down there to get people to think about, um, you know, again, drawing the analogy to um, physical uh, disabilities so that there, you know, people can see those. And actually, you know, for the most part, the um, society has been helping um, to support people. So there's ramps um, Mm -hmm. at every crosswalk. Now you'll see that they're starting to build so that there's not a curb Mm -hmm. um, so that if you're in a wheelchair or whatever, but then, so what are the communicative ramps um, to help people with, you know, communication issues? Um, And those are starting to appear. So for example, some, um, you know, restaurants will have a simplified menu where there's a picture and maybe just one word or it's in a bigger font um, so that, and that you can, um, I know that in the States, McDonald's had these, I haven't been to McDonald's since I moved back to Canada, so (laughs) (laughs) they still have these, but they would have a menu that they could hand to the individual so that the individual could point to the picture or word. And I think Starbucks had been doing that too. So there are starting to be Mm -hmm. some of these um, ramps, but like you said, a lot of, it is, it's invisible and it's misunderstood Mm-hmm. And um, so we have a lot of work to do still. <laughs> I had interviewed uh, Barbara Collier. This was season one, episode 12. I'm just looking at the, the description right now. And so Barbara Collier is the executive director and co-founder of Communication Disabilities Access Canada or CDAC. And, you know, it's exactly in line with what you're saying. It's how to give people access to communication how do we give them the communication ramp <laughs> you know right. um and and you know we all know about the the logo the wheelchair logo that shows that you know this is an accessible building but now they're trying to get the communication logo just as visible and so there is a lot of work to do still but slowly but surely um we're getting there and just trying to raise awareness on because like you said it's so debilitating if you can't get your point across if you can't get your needs met and it's more than just getting your needs met and and your point across but you know if you want services it's just ordering food at mcdonald's and i i think i forget which episode i had talked about this we were traveling to southern ontario and we stopped just at a roadside um, restaurant and I think it was Wendy's or and someone was in a wheelchair with a communication device so the person was sitting lower trying to order um, and it was it was something else just to try and 
order a burger and fries because, you know, the person on the other side of the counter kept asking more questions. Well, do you want, do you want onions on this? What do you want on this? Do we want ketchup? Do you want this? And do you want that? And how do you want it? And it was, oh, it was yeah. difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A, a lot of work. And even I've noticed too, you know, more, you know, when you do go out to eat, if it's a dine-in establishment, you know, the way that they design um, restaurants now, like there's really low lighting. They mm-hmm. tend to um, have open ceilings so that it's, um, there's a ton of noise and there might be background music and it's like, they're actually designed. It's yeah. the supportive <laughs> communication exactly. environment. And not only for people with acquired communication disorders, but as we get old, um, a lot of these things <laughs> happen to us anyhow. Yeah. Um, it's harder for us to think of words. Um, our attention starts to, um, is not as good as when we're younger. So, you know, getting some of these communication ramps, um, you know, into the public is not only going to help support those with acquired uh, neurogenic communication disorders, but it's also going to help all of us as we get old. That's right. Exactly. Seriously, yeah. Well, and I, I often give the analogy, just like our eyesight starts to fail us as we get older, same thing with a lot of these cognitive abilities you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. Now, when you were talking about cognition and language, it kind of reminded me, I, I, most of my work is around developmental language disorders, so with children, and there's a lot of research showing that it's hard to tell what's causing what. So children who um, may have a normal IQ when they're five and they have a developmental language disorder, sometimes when we retest their cognition later, it's it's not as high or, you know, it's not in the normal range. And they're saying, well, you need language sometimes to think and to reason and to process information. So are we seeing a lot of that same type of, you know, the the... the Chicken and the egg yeah. with adults? Absolutely, yeah. It becomes very challenging to, yeah, exactly, figure out which is which. And in um, a typically functioning brain, yeah, we use everything together, right? Mm-hmm. So we do, you know, as adults, you know, if you're thinking about um, how you might be problem solving or planning something, um, and you might be actually even talking out loud, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, how did I do this the last time? And talking yourself through something. Well, that's, you're just showing that, yes, we use language to support a number of these cognitive abilities. And so, you know, that, when something happens to your language, it can also be challenging for the individual to think about, you know, figure out, well, I always used to use my language to help me plan and problem solve and sequence and, you know, inhibit and all mm-hmm. these other um, cognitive abilities um, to remember saying it, you know, rehearsing it in your head verbally. Oh, well, now my language is affected. Yeah. So I have to find a new way to, to um, do that. Yeah. Um, and you can, we can help them. But again, it's, so whether it's what causes what isn't, um, I don't get too caught up in that right. other than to identify, well, yep, it's a very important relationship and 
let's try, there's lots of strategies we can do to help support you. So let's try and find some that will help support you. Yeah. And you've actually written a book, <laughs> co-authored a book, uh, Neurogenic Disorders of Language and Cognition, Evidence-Based Clinical Practice. Um, so, you know, maybe this kind of leads into the, this is more a book for, for professionals, people who work with people who have had um, neurogenic communication disorders. Um, what advice would you give to professionals, healthcare professionals who work with, with people who have these types of disorders? Um, so healthcare professionals, not at SLPs? Well, or, or, or yeah. More if you want to touch on all or just SLPs, whichever. So I think um, one important piece, uh, as we've learned more over the years about that um, a lot of people, for example, with aphasia can have these concomitant cognitive issues is to assure that the whole breadth of their abilities um, does get assessed. So um, in the past, I'd had the experience that because somebody had an acquired language disorder, they weren't even necessarily referred to some of the other healthcare professions um, like neuropsychology or sometimes it's occupational therapy that um, does some of these cognitive assessments because they didn't know how to assess them because of their yeah. language problems. So a lot of their tests That's right. um, have um, language demands. So it's, you know, just advocating to make sure that, you know, whoever does it, whoever on the health team does the um, cognitive assessment, that something needs to be done mm -hmm. um, because it really does play a role in how we will go on to help that individual. Um, so that would be a main take home. Another take home would be that when you're working with somebody with an acquired language problem, just know that they might have these additional um, cognitive issues. So for example, um, memory, the ability to sort of um, what we call working memory, the ability mm -hmm. to sort of temporarily hold on to information and do something with it, which is quite integral to learning with um, following directions, things like that. So, for example, if you were a physical therapist um, and trying to help the stroke patient, um, you know, being aware that when you're using your language and giving these instructions, you, you might, there's things that you might need to be able to do, do to modify your instructions to help support the individual as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, knowing this information about each patient's, each individual's, language and cognitive strengths and weaknesses can help the other healthcare professionals provide whatever mm -hmm. healthcare they provide. Yeah. Um, so for think, sure. Yeah. And just if the listeners want to know a bit more about working memory, I did uh, interview Dr. Lisa Archibald. Actually, oh. that's Laura's colleague. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we talked about working memory and language. So that was season one, episode 18. So she did kind of break down working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, and how um, we can have you know cognitive overload and that makes it more difficult to, to communicate and complete whatever task at hand. Wow, you're really good at, um, uh, you've done a 
a podcast on everything. Yeah. At this point. <laughs> Getting there. Well, and you know, it just goes to show how communication really touches everything. And it's, it's not just about speech and language and it, it, everything is related. So yeah. yeah, you have to keep all of that in mind. And I, I had, um, there was a speech pathologist, one of the first ones that I had interviewed and she called it, and I've seen this more and more on social media, speech and language pathologists, we should, we should be called speech, language, voice, neurogenic communication, swallowing, fluency patholo- yeah. pathologists. You know, there's so much more than just speech and language. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's more advice for professionals. Um, what advice would you give, you know, either people who have communication disorders themselves or loved ones who who are, you know, trying to adapt to their, their spouse or their children or whomever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's, um, you know, the first is hope because mm-hmm. even if, um, in all of these neurogenic, uh, disorders, you know, something has happened to the brain or maybe it is unfortunately a disease that's, you know, over time taking more and more of a toll on the brain. The whole message is that, you know, there is something we can do to help you. And um, whether it is to help you improve um, your language and cognitive abilities, whether it is to help you adapt and cope with um, those problems, just more of an accommodation. Or in the case of a progressive disease, there's research that says um, what we do can help slow down the rate of progression and, you know, help improve your quality of life or maintain it for as long as possible. So there's there's hope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And or sometimes it'll be that... um, Maybe the individual has a lot of language and cognitive issues, but we can help the family and friends find strategies um, that they can do. They can change their behavior to help support the individual with acquired language um, cognitive issues. Yeah, for sure. So there's a real, I've never actually um, met anyone that I couldn't think, hmm, I think I, there's something I can do to help you mm. out. And so always seek um, services. Right. I would also add that um, I continue to hear (laughs) the feedback from um, individuals with aphasia, individual family members, that at some point, some healthcare professional has told them, well, you know, after six months after a stroke, that's it. Yes. I've heard yeah. that. <laughs> There's nothing else you can do. Mm-hmm. Well, mind my professional jargon, but that's crap. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. We now know that that's absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the aphasia re- treatment research is actually built on e- studying individuals with aphasia who are a year or more mm-hmm. um, 
since the onset of their aphasia. And that goes for traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a huge literature on individuals with dementia mm-hmm. showing that we can help them get better or, again, maintain their um, skills. So if somebody tells you that, you know, yeah. it's okay to try and find additional services from yeah. maybe somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get a second opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when you're saying additional services, um, and I know it depends on where you're, you're, you live, but you know, what, who, who do they call? Who do they pick up the phone and call? I would go like, so for example, in Ontario, you can find a listing of speech language pathologists through provincial organizations, um, mm-hmm. whether it's provincial, uh, um, professional associations or um, the, the regulating body. Um, you can also go on, you know, there's places like there's, um, for example, there's like traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. um, associations that are like support groups. Right organizations if it's dementia there's like the alzheimer's society mm-hmm. so there's a lot of places um you can also contact you know universities that um offer speech language pathology programs because yeah. they might also have some connections right um, they always do in the community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um or you know uh, nearby communities to help yeah. um connect you what I can do is put the the provincial associations, the link to their website where you can, there's actually even a tab there. It's called the uh, Ontario Speech and Language Pathologists and Audiologists Association, um, where you can type in, find a speech and language pathologist. And I can put in our uh, college as well. There's information there and I'll put some of the universities, uh, well, there's 12 universities in Canada, so I can list those. So if uh, you're listening and you want to know more about how to find a speech and language pathologist, do go to the show notes at theparleypodcast.com and all of that information will be there as well as anything that we've talked about today, Laura and I, I'll put the link to her book and and whatever we're going to get into the next topic, which is our, or what are some of the useful resources and I'll, I'll put all that there. So yeah, I think... Uh, like you said, you don't necessarily have to know um, exactly who to call, but there's there's an association for almost every neurogenic communication disorder yeah, <laughs> out yeah, there. They're so. absolutely, yeah, like mm-hmm. Parkinson's disease, there, mm-hmm. there absolutely is. And, yeah. you know, nowadays too, like with the wonder of Google. That's right. <laughs> like you could even put in aphasia services, London, Ontario, and mm-hmm. it will likely help you link you to, you know, there's um, clinicians who have private practices mm-hmm. or, you know, which, um, which hospitals have outpatient services and things like that. So. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So like I said, um, let's talk a little bit about some of your favorite resources when it comes to neurogenic communication disorders. Well, um, many of what we've already talked about. Yeah, all um, these associations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that um, pro- professional associations um, are a great resource. Um, and again, you know, thanks to the internet, um, mm-hmm. you can access not just those provincially, um, nationally, like um, Speech Language Audiology Canada, but around the world. 
So I, I will say that um, in Australia, they have really put together a lot of excellent um, online resources for both clinicians and people with um, acquired uh, communication disorders. Um, and now, now I'm having my word retrieval issues <laughs> on, um, I might, I can forward those to sure. you because I can't even, there's, there's a number, like they have, um, a really fabulous aphasia network okay. in Australia that, um, can help clinicians access, um, again, resources, um, but also, um, advocates for people with aphasia to know about what kind of services they should get and um, okay. request um, as well as um, another whole network for those with traumatic brain injury. And for clinicians, there's again, lots of resources there too. Like, so they've got um, a whole program, a treatment program that a friend of mine, Leanne Tor has developed on um, supported communication. So where you're training mm-hmm. um, the communication partners as well. So that's all there. Yeah. Um, uh, Aura Kagan um, in Toronto <laughs> has her whole um, supported communication um, resources as well that are available online. And um, those are all, um, she recently got a grant that helped put a lot of them online so that they're free. That's great. And that's great for both clinicians and people with aphasia and their communication partners. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of excellent resources that are, again, these professional organizations um, and then I guess sort of community support Mm-hmm. Um, associations like the Alzheimer's Society has just fabulous uh, resources as well. So mm-hmm. online, there's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's endless. It's so much better than it used to be. <laughs> Absolutely, which is thank goodness for that. And I think if anybody is listening from remote communities, I think one thing that the COVID pandemic has taught us is that we can do so much using video conferencing. And so a lot of speech and language pathology clinics are offering services across the province virtually. And if, uh, if, the, if the person with the acquired communication disorder can't necessarily operate the computer or has a difficult time, then you just need someone there by their side to to help them. So there's that as well, which is fantastic. I think that's, that's one thing we'll see after all of this is services will now be more accessible. I hope, I hope people will continue to offer. Mm -hmm. I do too. And I think they'll also be, I think in the past, there's been a few challenges to even offering um, tele rehab Mm -hmm. where, you know, even issues like, um, well, I'm a clinician in Ontario, but I've been contacted by somebody in Manitoba Mm -hmm. because I provide a certain you know, service, a certain treatment approach. And there's been some challenges for that clinician to actually help that person. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm hopeful that that kind of um, 
roadblock mm-hmm. um, will be addressed. Um, I do know that in the United States, they're a bit ahead in terms of um, that, where they're trying to remove those kind of challenges that mm-hmm. having your state license in one state won't yeah. let you provide services in another state. And That's hopefully right. we'll, we'll get there. Do that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. For anybody listening, uh, speech and language pathologists, most regulated health professions are regulated by their province. And so we're not allowed to offer services to someone in another province, even though, <laughs> you know, those barriers should be removed, in my opinion, yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. All right. You've given us a few take-home messages already. Uh, is there anything else? I mean, I love how you said... There's hope, you know, we can always make changes and, and provide some assistance in some shape or form. Is there anything else that you want well, to Well, one message I like to always give to my students is um, to um, embrace advocacy. As yes. Well. Because I think that's the other way that we will be able to help. Um, more individuals with acquired uh, communication disorders in the future is advocating. So mm-hmm. advocating to other healthcare professionals about what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, one that continues to bug me is, is um, that a lot of healthcare professionals have no idea that we can help people with dementia. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so just letting them know the breadth, you know, like you said, the, 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 the longer title, whatever it is. Yeah, us. exactly. But advocating, um, yeah, to other healthcare professionals, joining professional associations that will also help spread the word to um, the general public mm-hmm. about what speech language pathologists do, what kind of services are available. Um, so that they know to ask. Exactly. You know, I, how many times have you worked with a family mm-hmm. where they didn't even know that these kind of services were available? I know. Um, it's so, I guess that would be the other one, just advocacy. Yeah. And, and communication is a basic human right. And so don't hesitate to ask for your right when it comes to communication and and that there are lots of services out there for sure. Now, actually you've done some, um, a bit of work on, on dementia and communication as well. Uh, Is there something that you'd like to talk about on that or, you know, it's a broad topic. (laughs) Well, it's one, like I continue to do, um, I, you know, I, every, I don't know three to four times a year, I present uh, work, you know, I go and talk to um, families who are dealing with a loved one who has dementia to talk about what is communication um, and how it might be affected in various types of dementia. Um, Sometimes, you know, like because everything's we've talked about interconnected, um, people have a good understanding that dementia affects memory abilities, but they don't necessarily understand that it also affects the communication. And so to know that some of the communication behaviors that they're seeing or patterns that they're seeing in their loved ones are 
related to the dementia Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to some sort of problem going on in their relationship. So, right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so for example, in some dementias, the person um, becomes much more passive and they don't say as much. And that can be interpreted as, well, he's pulling away or Mm -hmm. um, so knowing that communication is affected and again, giving that message of hope that with dementia, there's lots of strategies that we can practice and work on and to help um, you communicate with your loved one for as long as possible. Yeah. No, that's a good message for sure. I like that. I think the overall message that I'm, I'm getting from you is there's hope and there's, there's help out there and yeah. you can definitely find it way more easily now than ever before. So, well, I think we've kind of gone around all of the standard questions that I like to ask. Thank you so much. And uh, all of the uh, links and uh, tools that were discussed today will be posted on the show notes of the parleypodcast.com. So take a look at those. Thank you very much, Laura. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm going to remember to send them right now because that's my stuff. (laughs) Exactly. Do it now or it's gone. (laughs) For sure. I'm the same. Out of sight, out of mind. Well, I hope you have a great summer. Thank you. You'll have some holidays soon, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. Yeah, same here. Okay. Take care and uh, we'll talk to you soon.